Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, May 28th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, May 29th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? It is. It's It's been a very intense week. Um, in general, like in my personal life, it, it's going all right, but um, news-wise, it's been pretty intense. I think. Absolutely. I feel the same way. It feels like it's relentless. Um, So personally, Mm -hmm. I can't complain too much, but definitely, you know, it's a lot of heaviness going on just in the world, in the country, locally. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we we definitely want to just start our show off just offering some um, love and acknowledgement to all of the things that have happened this week. In the past two weeks, it's been tough reporting the news, but we want to spend, just take a moment to acknowledge where we all are in the world and what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're not, um, last week I talked about the um, mass shooting that happened in Buffalo. Um, it was a personal story for me, um, but also was being in the news. Um, unfortunately, there's been multiple other mass shootings in the United States. I think we're up to nearly 200, if not over 200 this year so far. Um, and most recently there was the horrible, horrible um, shooting of young school children in Uvalde, Texas. Um, 19 children lost their lives and two adults, and there were others injured. Uh, so we're not going to talk about that story in at length today, but we will talk about it in the future. It's evolving, but you know, obviously our condolences to those who have lost someone and you know, praying for and hoping for peace and some closure, but very sad um, story coming out of Texas right now. Yeah, so just offering some love to everyone who is feeling that. Uh, doesn't matter where you are, uh, pain is pain. So we also have a special edition, a couple of stories, and our music today on the show will be dedicated to Asian American and Pacific Islander Month. We wanted to acknowledge the stories as well as the artists um, of that community and um, show them some love. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's, oh, let me tell you a little bit what we're going to talk about today. Let's start there. So for our local news segment, we will be talking about the skyrocketing rent in New York City. Our national news segment is about some of the challenges that the Asian American and Pacific Islander community faces when accessing and receiving mental health services. Our world news story will be about the criticism of Canada's new medical assistance and dying law. And for good news today, we'll have a background on um, the origins of Asian American Pacific Islander Month. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, you're up. All righty. This story comes from a May 24th New York Times article by Mihir Zaveri and Dana Rubenstein titled Eric Adams Faces Pressure on New York's Housing Crisis as Rents Rise. We've got to get it right, the mayor says, but the city council and advocates want him to push more and spend more to address the dire shortage of affordable housing. The article explains, quote, shortly after becoming mayor of New York City, Eric Adams said he would roll out a comprehensive housing plan within a couple of weeks to tackle the rising housing costs and homelessness that have made the city an emblem of a growing national crisis. But four months later, Mr. Adams has yet to make good on promises he made during his campaign and has dialed back at least one, 
prompting criticism over how strong a priority he has placed on a top issue for many New Yorkers. The details of the plan are still being worked on ahead of an expected release next month. It will arrive as rising rents and the end of pandemic era safety nets are building pressure on the new administration to aggressively address a seemingly intractable set of problems that Mr. Adams inherited and that have an enormous impact on the city's economy and social fabric. I do think what we're seeing with rising rents now, it was really unimaginable just a couple of years ago, said Rachel Fee, executive director of the New York Housing Conference, a nonprofit group who was listed as a contributor, who was listed as a contributor for a housing committee on Mr. Adams's transition team. It has to be a top issue for the mayor. I do think City Hall has to address it with more urgency. Members of the City Council, which is negotiating the budget with the mayor, have also called for more spending on building and preserving affordable housing after Mr. Adams proposed only a modest increase over the previous administration's spending for the next several years in his capital budget plan. At a rally on the steps of City Hall last week, Pierina Sanchez, the chair of the City Council's Housing Committee, said, New York City needs to treat the affordable housing crisis, the housing crisis, like the number one problem. The mayor has, um, <clears throat> sorry, quote, the mayor has defended his pace even as a staffing shortage in the Department of Housing Preservation and Development has hobbled the city's ability to move ahead with affordable housing projects. I know it feels like I have been the mayor for five years, but I've been here for five months, Mr. Adams said at a news conference last Friday. I've inherited a broken city with broken systems. We can either put a Band-Aid on top of these broken systems or go to the core and fix them. But he added, there's no rush to doing this. We've got to get it right. In New York City, roughly one-third of renters are severely rent burdened, meaning they spend more than 50% of their income on rent, according to a survey of the city's housing stock issued last week. Uh, more than 48,000 people slept in New York City shelters each night in March, according to the Coalition for the Homeless, with the number of single adults in shelters increasing steadily over the last several years. The pandemic accentuated many of these problems as tens of thousands of people struggled to afford rent or mortgage payments and sought government assistance. Many places across the nation are grappling with housing affordability, and there's a growing recognition that a root cause is the shortage of available homes. This week, President Biden announced a new plan to address the housing crisis that would incentivize reforming zoning laws to allow for more density, among other provisions. The city's affordability crisis has been underscored more than once in recent weeks. A report released this month by the brokerage firm Douglas Elliman showed that rents in some parts of the city are continuing to surge. In Manhattan, for example, the median effective uh, rent in April 2022 was 3870 more than 38% higher than a year before and the highest level ever recorded. The survey of the city's housing stock underscored a long-standing trend of dwindling affordability. Between 2017 and 2021, New York City lost almost 100,000 units that had rented for less than $1,500 per month, while it added 107,000 units that rent for at least $2,300 per month. A panel effectively controlled the, uh, by the mayor recently voted to back some of the biggest rent increases in nearly a decade for rent-stabilized homes, where more than 2 million people live, many who are lower income. Evictions are slowly on the rise after the state's pandemic moratorium expired in January.
The forthcoming housing plan is likely to include provisions to cut down on homelessness, improve the conditions in public housing, and boost homeownership opportunities for middle-income and lower-income New Yorkers, according to testimony from housing officials. During his campaign, Mr. Adams made solving the housing crisis and housing shortage top issues. He said he would double the city's capital investment in housing, including public housing and the preservation and development of affordable homes, to $4 billion annually, roughly double the amount spent by the previous administration. Instead, Mr. Adams has called for spending on average $500 million more every year for the next 10 years. Uh, Quote, previous administrations also took several months or longer to develop housing plans. Mayor Michael R. Bloomberg issued his housing plan in December of his first year in office, and while he is credited with helping redevelop the city and securing affordable housing, critics also blame his plans for allowing displacement and inequality. Sorry, allowing for displacement and inequality. Mayor Bill de Blasio, who made housing a centerpiece of his campaign, issued a housing plan roughly five months after he took office that ultimately evolved into a goal of building or preserving 300,000 affordable homes by 2026. While that was a significant increase in investment compared with previous administrations, the plan drew criticism for focusing too much on numerical targets and too little on affordability for lower-income families. Quote, the plan... uh, and this is the current plan, uh, current administration's plan, uh, quote, which the city is being, uh, which the city says is being formulated with input from people who have experienced homelessness and public housing residents, will focus on measuring how quickly people can get into affordable homes, as well as the overall number of units filled during a specific time period, the mayor's office said. Quote, some New Yorkers believe that Mr. Adams needs to act more quickly. Beverly Rivers, 66, has lived in a rent-stabilized unit in the Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn for 25 years, and her $1,009 rent already exceeds the money she receives from disability payments, her only income. Any rent increase will add to the more than $8,000 she said she owes her landlord, who sued to evict her last month. Ms. Rivers said she voted for Mr. Adams, believing he would fight for poor people, but she was disappointed that he did not support a rent freeze or rollback. He didn't do anything for us, she said. He's not for us. So, yeah, um, this is a serious issue that's affecting basically everyone I know in New York City. Um, there, and since things started reopening from the pandemic, their uh, affordability, like across the board, is like it's not a thing like there. I know, I know a lot of people that have lived in the city for six, seven, eight, nine years that, you know, have found apartments and the normal wave of looking for apartments. And right now for like, I know people that were going to look for a new place and then it was just, it was impossible to find anything within their budget, like period people with full-time jobs, like, you know, people with who make more money than I do. Like it's, it's really crazy. I feel like it's like never been affordable to live in New York City. I lived there for almost 15 years and it was a struggle the entire time. It didn't matter, you know, what kind of increases I made or how many jobs I had, just never really evened out. And since leaving, you know, not like California is any better, but the reality is at least it's a better quality of life. And that's the hardest part, right? If you're going to pay thousands of dollars, you should have a better quality of life. And it just makes it hard on everyone. Like we've talked on the show um, not that long ago about like deaths of despair, like deaths that are happening amongst like the unhoused population 
um, the way the police are, you know, attacking or removing people who are unhoused, like from public view, like that's a priority. This is really, it's, it's unsustainable. And I really don't understand like people who defend the idea that housing should be treated like a way to like get rich or like to enrich oneself so that justifies prices going up 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 and never coming down i don't understand what they think the end goal is gonna be like we're already at a point where like not just in new york because you know i think the city is emblematic of these issues but this is a problem that's happening around the country in cities, you know, and then people that can't afford to live in the cities, like they might go out to other parts of the country. And then by them moving there, they displace the people that were there before them and make the rents go up. Like, it it just feels like, you know, you have this hot air balloon that's just going higher and higher and higher, and eventually it's going to burst. And I think when it does burst, like we're going to see a lot of very ugly um, situations happening and it, it's frightening to think about like what you know the police are going to be used to do against people like trying to squat or like trying to figure out how to live together um, I've seen examples of like laws being passed in other states like criminalizing like raising um, tents like if you're in a tent outside like that's illegal in some parts of the countries now I've seen laws being passed where like you can't cohabitate with others if you're not a part of the same immediate family you know it's like just criminalizing what people have to do to survive in this climate where like your housing costs are going up but your wages aren't keeping pace like other protections are not keeping pace it's really, it's scary to consider like where this is all heading. Yeah, that's um that one law you mentioned about cohabitating with people that aren't relatives that I know specifically that I think it's, it might just be Denver, but maybe the whole state of Colorado because I had friends out there and I, I had, I hadn't heard about that before. And it's, it is like, it is mind blowing that people would try and regulate something like that, you know, like, and I think they use some, some archaic, I may be conflating things, but I think they're using like archaic, like, oh, brothel laws or whatever, you know, like, obviously, this must be a house of ill repute if people are living together, some bullshit like that. Um, Just super archaic and um, discriminatory. And what it was for me, what I think also really stood out in the article was the the one person quoted at the very end, um, Miss Miss Rivers, who... um, is on disability and still can't afford a rent stabilized apartment. Like it, it, I feel like that needs to be some sort of like, who's in charge of deciding how much people get on disability. And if they're also in like a unit, you know, that's also regulated by the government. I feel like there needs to be some sort of communication between that, right? Like you should be able to afford a government regulated apartment if you are on government assistance. Right. And like, cause what else is that there for? There's always been, you know, these horror stories of the way you're treated oftentimes by your landlord being dependent on how much you pay. Like sometimes even within the same building, like some units getting necessary updates to things that you need um, to live comfortably. It's like if you're on disability or you have like a rent stabilized unit, like you don't get your things fixed 
in a timely manner but like a yuppie that moved into you know a unit that has a jacked up rent they do get that type of attention or it's just really it's scary you know because like what do you expect for people to do like just honestly what do you expect is gonna happen and with all these protections like expiring because people are you know in la la land thinking the pandemic is over when it's clearly not um it just it's a very eerie creepy feeling and um i don't know if you've been in the city emily recently or if you were just in jersey when you came but um some people Mm -hmm. i know had been talking about like they're not sure if homelessness has gotten worse or if it's just they don't remember how bad it was because they haven't been out as much i would definitely say that it's gotten a lot worse because like when you have people barely hanging on like that are on disability that don't make that much money or whatever and these rents are like astronomical you have like that bottom rung of people is just going to get cycled out into like what the shelter system the street people that you know maybe your mom or your grandmother or whoever was like making sure you had a roof over your head because maybe you can't work or like something is going on where like you need to be somewhat dependent on a different person when that person's apartment isn't available anymore they're pushed out what happens to that other individual you know, they might end up on the street, you know, to then be brutalized or whatever. Like, it's just, um, I really wish more people would open their eyes to like how much of this is like a crushing cycle and how much like brutality is being normalized against people that are just trying to survive. Like it's real, it's not normal. And like you said, people, if people are struggling and they got quote unquote good jobs, I've known people, they're like multiple levels above me in the hierarchy at work. And they've, you know, I'm thinking they're making tons of money and they have like more than one roommate. Like if that's how they're living. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think people are living that are making like below minimum wage or whatever, or they're not making any wage? Like the disabled woman you mentioned in the story, you know, like it's just, it's not sustainable long term. And I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, the woman that you spoke about in the story, because, you know, there comes a time in everybody's life where you get older. And if your assets are not, if you never had an opportunity to really have assets the way you need to sustain for that part of your life, that's which is probably 70 to 80 percent of people. um, Then, you know, that you can't afford your medicines, you can't afford any help. Um, I have family members right now that are in dire need of an aid. And it's like, well, every time somebody comes to my house, I'm going to have to pay. If that's not a part of some sort of, you know, government plan, then what what is going to happen for those people? And that, you know, that is the situation that a lot of people face. And unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, homelessness for children is also on the rise in New York City and all over the country. Um, And obviously, for the same reasons we're talking about in the story. So this is a huge problem. Um, The people who are being penalized for having multiple people living at their homes. I just think that's absurd. Housing is a human right and something needs to be done about this. Absolutely. All right. Well, Amen to that. Yeah, man. It's, it's crazy out here. Okay. Let's take a breath. We're going to take our first music break today. The track is called The Difference and it's by Toro Imoy and Flume. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our national news story, um, this comes from USA, usnews.com. Uh, the author of this article, okay, her name is Laura Williamson, and the article is a part of American Heart Association News. All right, it's from Wednesday, May 25th. Since the start of COVID-19 pandemic, FBI data shows that people of Asian descent increasingly have been targets of racially motivated attacks. Hate crimes have spilled over to affect the community in dramatic ways. People feel scapegoated and blamed for the pandemic, said Dr. Howard Kiangu Koi, the Harvey V. Feinberg Professor of the Practice of Public Health Leadership at Harvard University, T.H. Chan School of Public Health in Boston. That has fueled a rise in anxiety and depression in a population that is already one of the least likely to access much-needed mental health services, according to the nonprofit Mental Health America. Koi, who is a former U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health and of Korean descent, has written extensively about racially motivated violence against Asian Americans and its health consequences. A recent article he co-wrote in a journal in the journal Health Affairs cites national polls from 2020 and 2021 in which more than a third of Asian adults in the U.S. said their mental health worsened during the pandemic, with 58% saying re- 
saying reports of violence against other Asian people affected their mental health. In 2019, just 9 to 10% of U.S. adults of Asian descent reported mental health issues, according to the federal statistics. A 2021 survey by the Asian American Psychological Association showed that a level of more than 40% since the arrival of COVID-19. Among Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander adults in the AAPA survey, 38% reported symptoms of depression or anxiety. But according to the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health, Asian Americans are 60% less likely and Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders three times less likely to receive mental health services than their white peers. When they do seek help, according to the AAPA, they face challenges. 62% of Asian Americans and 41% of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders diagnosed with mental health conditions said they needed assistance accessing care. The effects of not getting that help go beyond the psychological, potentially causing loss long-lasting harm to their hearts. Research published in January in the Journal of BMJ Open linked living in areas with high levels of hate crimes to a greater risk for heart disease risk factors, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. Studies also show a strong association between anxiety and depression and a higher risk for heart disease. Structural inequalities are among the reasons people of Asian, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander background may not get the help they need. Research, for example, is limited by minimal funding. Just 0.17% of the National Institutes of Health Research budget is committed to studying health effects on Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander adults. Then there is the problem of aggregation of data under such a broad umbrella. This population is extremely heterogeneous, covering about 100 languages and 50 ethnicities, said Coy. The term Asian American is about as useful as the term European American. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, roughly 24 million people of Asian descent lived in the United States in 2020, with roots in more than 20 countries in the East and Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent with an additional 1.6 million Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders, AANHPI individuals make up about 7% of the U.S. population. One reason people of Asian American communities are less likely to use mental health services stems from how they determine when a problem rises to the level of needing professional assistance, said David Takuchi, an associate dean for faculty excellence and professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. Takuchi has been researching how Asian American adults address mental issues and how the pandemic has impacted their need for services. If it's more an emotional problem and not a physical illness, they may see it as something they can work through unless it interferes with functioning of daily life, he said. Stigma also plays a role, Ko said. People may feel pressure to live up to a model minority stereotype and experience some sense of shame and stigma when they are not able to do so, he said. Stoicism may also be a factor of some, of some who only seek help when symptoms are severe. But stigma doesn't affect only the individual, Takuchi said. In his research, which is not yet published, he found Asian American adults were concerned about embarrassing their family if they sought mental health services. If family members consented, he said, they are more likely to see a specialist. 
People in Asian American communities may also face language barriers and lack confidence in their ability to navigate the U.S. healthcare system. We have a system that is hard to navigate for anybody, said Ko, and they may not feel the clinicians who are assigned to them are sensitive to their issues. When they do not get help, it's more likely to be throughout the community service agencies, such as local and national nonprofit organizations or university-based counseling and referral services than through private providers, Takuchi said. Over the past decade, those agencies have stepped up efforts to spread information about their services, but the pandemic has stretched resources thin. Asians Do Therapy is an initiative that grew out of the need for more culturally relevant approaches to mental health services. The website highlights the therapy experiences of Asian American celebrities and others and offers tips on how to find an appropriate therapist, questions to ask to make sure it's a good fit, and advice on how to find free or reduced fee services. The Asian Mental Health Collective provides a national directory of Asian American therapists and a list of related resources such as human services and mental health agencies that can provide support. Takuchi said that agencies offer help, but people just may not know about their existence. There have been a lot of informal campaigns, but it still remains a major issue. So that's pretty much the article. Um, I thought that it made a, a really valid point, especially talking about the um, demographics of that community and how diverse they are, putting them under one umbrella and saying that, you know, just kind of classifying um, this community as, as one group really hurts um, any studies that could be done as well as the services that are being offered because everybody's experience is not the same. So that's one thing. Um, I also think that the idea that it's hard to navigate the healthcare system, that's really a big point too, because that's hard for anyone. So I can only imagine um, with all of the stigma and maybe language barriers and even access to care for lack of insurance or where they are in the community, it could really be damaging to people who need a lot of help. Yeah, that was some really interesting points to Reese. Those are some of the things that stood out to me too. The, um, I mean, a lot of those like census like which group you, do you fit in right like of like really really broad categories like is really out like yeah. antiquated and outdated in general right because there's so many sub like ethnic groups within like you know five choices like you know how many different types yeah. of people and groups there are in the world right and like you know like for example like me like I'm white, but also I'm Ashkenazi Jewish. And that actually like puts me in a higher risk for a lot of health issues. Right. So it's like, and a lot of times there, there isn't a place to check that off. Right. Like, um, so that's just an example in like my personal life, how it's like, and those groupings are just not adequate. And then the mental health thing too, I think was really interesting. Cause it's like, it's a, it's a reminder, you know, I'm a big fan of therapy. I think everyone could use therapy. It just depends on how much, right? Once a year, once a week, it varies yeah, on how much you exactly. need. Exactly. What kind uh-huh. you need <laughs> Yep. And I think, I think, and it's interesting to hear you say that because I think it's a good reminder that, I mean, there's a lot of barriers to mental health access and some of them are external affordability um, access from that point of view. And, and sometimes it is like a, the community, um, what's the word like bias or it's, it's like, um, culturally unaccepted, um, in that sense. And it's, it's a good reminder that conversations about how important it is as well as tips on access, because not every therapist is going to be right for you. Um, but there's so many people that are so far from even trying to see a therapist. It's just, 
uh, it's an important conversation though to have yeah i would um i would like to third the sentiment that them breaking down like the issues with some of the acronyms we use or the labels that we use that it facilitates a lot of erasure because a lot of times like especially if you're trying to talk about like averages or like measuring quote unquote success among different groups it's like the way that you group people can completely change what those numbers look like like if you have a particular group of people from a specific country that are like largely allowed to immigrate to the states legally, you know, only if they meet certain very high criteria of like education or money, but then you lump them in with a different ethnic group of people that overwhelmingly comes to this country, like, and has a more blue collar working class or lower class refugee status, like that can really skew the picture of like how many people within um, that broader category are like dealing with poverty or that, you know, do not have a high standard of living. And I I think that you see that a lot with um, people that are under that broad umbrella term of Asian. I do think there's a stereotype or a misconception that everyone who is Asian is, you know, making a lot of money or, you know, does really well in a formal educational setting when like in reality, just like with any group of people, like there's a wide, a wide array of people that, you know, may not finish high school or like they might have, they might be coming from another country and don't speak English very well. Like you miss a lot of the picture when you try to categorize people in such broad ways. And I think if you really think about it, like why would someone who is like native Hawaiian be in the same category as someone who is from Pakistan in the same category as someone who is Korean? Like, I think when you say it out loud, it makes it more like, huh, like, why do we have, you know, just this word Asian for all of these super diverse groups? Um, And the other thing I like that you mentioned is like the connection between mental health and physical health, which is not, I don't think people appreciate that as much as they should, that all of that is connected. Like if you're dealing with a lot of stress, anxiety, depression, that has an effect on your heart. It has an effect on like your blood pressure, like all types of things. Like it it can take years off of your life. So it's not something that should be neglected. We have to take it seriously. Yeah, all very good, important points. Um, And I think, you know, just because we are highlighting this community, I think this conversation um, is accessible for anyone. Um, You know, some of the stigma stigma around um, mental health and just reaching for assistance, like we need it every day, especially with all the things that we see in the news and that we hear and that we have to process. Um, It affects all of us. And I just want to, you know, just offer some, love you know I'm a lover out here but the reality is like if you need help you know it is available it doesn't have to be so formal it could be just simply just speaking to someone who may be a little different than you or offering an ear to someone who looks like they need it but definitely uh, something to consider is a challenge for the members of this community and all the vastness that is of them Um, I think also a lot of times these issues get a little bit looked over because if they're not uh, port cities those communities may not have such a strong presence as they do in the port cities and, you know, people in the middle of America or uh, cities where 
that you know there's not an abundance or a Chinatown or a Koreatown or a space that can be identified there are communities within those towns that also need access and also need to feel safe you know so it's just something to think we have lived on coastal cities and you know across the world and I think um, I've definitely when I moved to New York opened my mind a lot more to these communities because in Ohio it was few and far between but the reality that there are places where they don't have representation um, you know within local governments or even within the healthcare system is probably another challenge to consider all right well I guess it's break time (laughs) Um, the next track is called Nobody and it's by an artist called Mitski we'll be right back my God, I'm so lonely, so I open the window to hear sounds of people, to hear sounds of people. Venus, planet of love, was destroyed by global Oh, 
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next up is Jasmine with our world news story. Okay, so this is um, a news story that doesn't come from very far away. It's concerning some recent changes to Canada's um, medical assistance and dying law. Uh, so just a little bit of background. Um, there is a law in Canada that make, makes it, you know, you have the right to um, apply for medical assistance in dying. And there used to be uh, a requirement that there had to be a reasonable foreseeability of natural death and that you had to be considered like nearing the end of life in order for you to apply for MAID, as it's called, M-A-I-D. That requirement is no longer in effect. So the law no longer requires a person's natural death to be reasonably foreseeable as an eligible criterion for medical assistance in dying. Um, and that is from the Canadian government's website. Um, I'll add the link on our uh, show page. Okay, so this article was written in The Guardian, and the title is, Are Canadians Being Driven to Assisted Suicide by Poverty or Healthcare Crisis? Um, it was written on Wednesday, May the 11th. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing in the interest of time, but I, as always, encourage you to read the full thing on your own time. Um, so after pleading unsuccessfully for affordable housing to help ease her chronic health condition, a Canadian woman ended her life in February under the country's assisted suicide laws. Another woman suffering from the same condition and also living on disability payments has nearly reached final approval to end her life. The two high-profile cases have prompted disbelief and outrage and shown a light on Canada's right-to-die laws which critics argue are being misused to punish the poor and infirm. In late April, The Spectator ran a story with the provocative headline, Why is Canada Euthanizing the Poor? But medical and legal experts cautioned that oversimplified media coverage of the cases failed to capture the realities of the system and warned that sensationalist coverage of a handful of quote-unquote extreme cases ignores a larger crisis in the country's healthcare systems. In February, a 51-year-old Ontario woman known as Sophia was granted physician-assisted death after her chronic condition became intolerable and her meager disability stipend left her little to survive on, according to CTV News. The government sees me as expendable trash, a complainer, useless, and a pain in the ass, she said in a video obtained by the network. For two years, she and friends had pleaded without success for better living conditions, she said. Now a second case has emerged with several parallels. Another woman known as Denise has also applied to end her life after being unable to find suitable housing and struggling to survive on disability payments. Both were diagnosed with multiple chemical sensitivity, or MCR, a condition in which common chemicals like those in cigarette smoke and laundry detergents can trigger nausea, 
blinding headaches, and in extreme cases, anaphylactic shock. Both had also argued that specialized housing where airflow is more controlled would ease their debilitating symptoms. Unable to work, they each received $1,169 per month, placing them well below the poverty line in Canada's most populous and expensive province. For activists, the cases have come to represent Canada's failure to care for its most vulnerable citizens and raise questions about how assisted suicide laws are applied. But experts caution the cases are also being used by groups opposed to medical assistance in dying, MAID, in an attempt to scale back legislation, rather than looking at how governments can improve people living with disabilities. Chantal Perrault, a physician and maid provider, said that while housing could have helped, it was only part of a broader struggle against the chronic condition. The only treatment really for that is avoidance of all triggers. That's pretty much impossible to do in ordinary life. So better housing can create a temporary bubble for a person, but there's no cure for this, she said. We do this work because we believe in people's rights to an assisted death. It's not always easy to do, but we know that patients need it and value it. We live with the challenge of the work in part because it is important to alleviate that suffering. When Canada introduced legislation on assisted suicide in 2016, advocacy groups raised fears that vulnerable populations could be targeted or that physicians would be forced to override the oaths they'd taken to protect patients. Last year, lawmakers revised the criteria for MAID after the country's Supreme Court ruled that a previous version of the law, which excluded people with disabilities, was unconstitutional. The issue is once again before a special joint parliamentary committee tasked with deciding whether to expand access to consenting children and those with mental illness. Jocelyn Downey, a professor of law at Dalhousie and expert in end-of-life policy, said there are extensive guardrails in the system to protect Canadians. You have to meet rigorous eligibility criteria, and being poor and not having a home or a home that is suitable for you does not make you eligible, said Downey. Instead of fighting over the law, which lawmakers are unlikely to repeal, given a string of Supreme Court cases upholding the right to physician-assisted death, Downey said a greater emphasis should be on disability supports and services and mental health supports. The reality is it's a small number of people who qualify for MAID, but investments in mental health and disability resources would go so far to help so many more people live their lives. Um, So as of right now, um, a mental illness is not considered a reason, but that is it's possible that will be changed by March of 2023. Wow, that's a really interesting article. Thank you, Jasmine. Um, I really don't know how to take that. It was loaded. Emily, what you got? I'm still processing. Yeah, no, super, super interesting. I um, am more familiar with like, in the US, like, I think it's still suicide might still be illegal in and of itself. I think in certain places, I'm not a hundred percent sure of that, but like, you know, like to jump from that to 
a government that's currently, you know, going to have a committee come together to decide if like children can be allowed to apply. Like, wow. Like it's a lot to process. Yeah. I think, you know, even though this isn't something that's new news because this has existed for a while in Canada, I think that, um, sometimes as us citizens, like our healthcare system is so screwed up and everything, I think it's easy Mm -hmm. or people often look at Canada as like some kind of a utopia. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, there's a lot of things that to me, like scream, like ableism, eugenesis, like eugenesis ideas, like you can't go to Canada to live from another country. Like if they consider you to be too much of a potential burden because you're disabled or have certain illnesses, this it's like the expansion of it is what's particularly creepy because it's one thing to be like, in a hospice situation where someone is like the requirement is that like this is someone that is actively dying and they're in a lot of pain and then once you remove that it's like that's open to so much like pressure or coercion or just like if you deny people the things that they would need in order to feel like they're able to live a decent life then yeah, eventually they're going to feel like their life isn't worth living. Like, but is that really a free choice or did you push them into that situation? Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, we all get pushed into situations here and everywhere that are beyond our control, to say the least. Yeah, and I don't really, especially now that they're opening it to potentially kids, like you said, Emily, people that might have a mental illness, So Mm -hmm. someone might just be in a state of crisis or like they're just not in their right mind, like in that moment or they just need access to medicine Mm -hmm. or something. But you can see very quickly. And I think we've had situations in the States, especially with COVID and like people being pushed to sign like DNRs, like do not resuscitate orders based on their age or their disability or whatever, like not everyone in healthcare is like super compassionate or necessarily wants to, puts equal value on all of their patients like i could very easily see you know someone else essentially deciding that they don't think it's worth it to help you get better and then you know you have these laws on the books like what's going to be there for you to prevent that so it's uh, it's very it's scary for sure and i know on on Twitter, just anecdotally, I've been seeing a lot of like stories popping up of Canadians, like feeling personally afraid or feeling like they go into the hospital and like they find out that there's doctors there that are very much in support of this and it makes them afraid to go. You know, it's, it's scary to think about like where this is headed. Wow, definitely a good story. Thank you so much for that, Jasmine. Emily, can you give us the good news? Yeah, so for the final segment this week, uh, our, the team wanted to highlight, or for the, the show in general, we wanted to highlight that it's the end of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, as we've been talking about on the show. Um, so for this final segment, I'm going to present some information um, about the background of the month as a celebration, um, and it comes from a May 2nd NPR article by Rena Torchinsky titled The Story Behind Asian Pacific American Heritage and Why It's Celebrated in May. The article explains, quote, 
May marks Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, which celebrates the histories of Americans hailing from across the Asian continent and from the Pacific islands of Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia. This year's theme, selected by the Federal Asian Pacific American Council, is Advancing Leaders Through Collaboration, which builds on a leadership advancement theme series that began last year. Cynthia Choi, co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action and co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate, says the month is a time to speak out, share stories, and debunk myths, myths about Asian communities, she said. But it's not the only time to celebrate Asian culture or diversity. Our history is also filled with incredible stories of resilience, of persistence, of determination to fight for our basic rights, Choi told NPR. This is a celebration of our history, of our culture, and all the different ways in which our community has really demonstrated that we're not only here to stay, we are part of this fabric, a part of this country. Quote, the legislation to annually designate May as Asian Pacific American Heritage Month referenced two key dates, May 7th and May 10th. May 7th, 1843, marks the arrival of the first Japanese immigrants to the United States. And May 10th, 1869, or Golden Spike Day, recognizes the completion of the first transcontinental railroad in the U.S., which had significant contributions from Chinese workers. The railroad, the railroad stretched from the West Coast to the East Coast, and 15,000 to 20,000 Chinese immigrants were a major part of its construction, according to History.com. Initially, construction superintendent James uh, Strobridge deemed the immigrants unfit for the job, but the railroad needed workers and many white people weren't interested. Conditions were brutal in the Sierra Nevada and, uh, and Chinese workers weren't receiving the same pay as their white counterparts, according to the Chinese Railroad Workers in North America project. Unlike white workers, Chinese workers had to pay for their own food and had to work longer hours, according to the project. The railroad was fundamental to the development of the American West, according to History.com. It cut travel time across the U.S. from months to less than a week. Uh, quote, the Federal Asian Pacific American Council, a nonprofit that supports the interests of Asian Americans, Ho Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders in the federal and D.C. governments, selected the theme, which I mentioned earlier, uh, Advancing Leaders Through Collaboration. The theme builds on the Advancing Leaders series, uh, as I also mentioned earlier, and uh, this the series, which began in 2021 and will run through 2024, last year's theme was advancing leaders through purpose-driven service. When you have diversity at the leadership table, the magnitude of what you can accomplish is enormous, Famita Ch uh, Chippa, FAPAC's vice president, told NPR. You really expand yourself in the horizons to have something creative and innovative. And collaboration can lead to innovation, uh, Chippa says, adds. The council says this year's theme further highlights FAPAC's efforts in advancing leaders in the federal and D.C. governments, according to a press release. Choi also emphasized the importance of collaboration. We do need to center the experiences of those who've been disproportionately impacted, she told NPR. And when government not only listens, but implements the recommendations of communities who are closest to those who are in being impa impacted right now, you get better results. And that is a little background about uh, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Thank you. I didn't really know all of those details. That's so pretty cool that it, you know, um, commemorates some dates that some major things happen in a community. So I think that's a really cool story. 
Alrighty, guys, we did it. We made it to the end of another episode of Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track for this episode is Borders, and it's by MIA. We will see y'all next week. Bye. Bye. Have a good week. Bye. Freedom, I don't meet him. Where's your freedom? This one needs a brand new freedom. Weed and the key. Weed and the key them to life. Let's beat them. Weed them smartphones, don't beat them. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.